Throughout this season of Advent, we have been inviting each and every single one of us to ponder what does it actually mean for Christ to come into our hearts? What will he have to say to us? And we've been imagining, actually, that God has stepped into the home of our hearts and stepped into room after room after room. And before we've heard from uh, the preacher, um, we've had a bit of um, a reading to prepare us for that. So let me just um, uh, invite you to sort of take a deep breath. I'm going to walk you through some of these rooms very quickly before we get to this next one. Imagine, if you would, that you are walking with Christ and you've shown him the study of your mind, your habits of thinking. And you've crossed the way into the dining room and you've already had a conversation about your ambitions, your appetites, and your desires. You walk through another door and you find yourself with Christ in the kitchen. And you have a conversation about your life of service and the things you're doing for the community and kingdom of God that's right around you. Now we step into that fourth room. As we walked down the hall, Jesus paused at the door and looked in. What room is this? I told him it was the master bedroom, all the while thinking there are some rooms off-limits to guests. Mm-hmm, he said, and stepped right in. I reluctantly followed him in, not all sure this was a good idea. He scanned the room until he saw the picture of my, on my nightstand. That's my wife, I said, smiling. Thoughts of our wedding day, vacations, and even simple walks came flooding in. Seeing my smile, Jesus asked, you love her very much, don't you? I did. I do, I said, catching myself. Thinking about her, I had the strange sensation of all the other rooms of my heart colliding. I recalled the images in my study, the appetites at my table, the lame things I made in my kitchen to serve others. In truth, my heart is confused about my marriage. I am vulnerable to temptation, to discontent, and to self-centeredness. I realized Jesus already knows all this. He broke in, but sometimes you let your weakness get the best of you, and you wonder if my teachings about love and marriage and sex are actually best. Yes, I whispered, afraid to admit it too loudly. Then listen, the marriage bond is intended as a great gift to a man and a woman. Not easy, but good. The friendship, intimacy, shared vision, and mutuality are a powerful good but also fragile, needing constant care. Marriage is a way we can mirror the love, faithfulness, and union that can be found in a relationship with God. It is also a microcosm for how we treat the world around us, a, mo a model commonwealth for how we work, hope, fight, and play. This is why God intends for you to express this union only within the commitment of a loving, lifelong partnership. Marriage always needs tending and protecting and it can witness to the character of my constant faithfulness. My heart thumped. I'd already broken this promise in so many small ways, and a few big ones. Let me help you, he continued. If something causes shame or guilt in your marriage, remember that I love you and will remain with you always. Let's seek renewal together. Tell me about it, with me 
we can learn to stop it from happening again. I recognized how far I had to go before I was loving my wife the way Jesus loves me. I'd become stronger, better, and gentler because of Jesus' habitual and sacrificial love for me. Could I seek my wife's welfare before my own the way Jesus does for me? Jesus assured me he could. I have discovered that the bedroom of my heart, my marriage, is one of the great priorities Jesus has for me as a married person. With his help, I can learn to alter the whole cycle and pattern of love between us. I love her. She overflows with love for me. We flourish. Our children thrive. Our friends are encouraged. Our tiny corner of the world is forever altered. So the idea for this series comes from this opening line from this Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And I know we haven't sung it yet. It's coming. Just keep coming back. It's coming. And that opening line, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king really puts us on this path to understand the the cosmic work of Christ. He's come to do incredibly large, impossibly infinite in its magnitude work on our behalf and for all of creation. Joy to the world, joy to all of it. The Lord has come. This is a huge cosmic story we've been seeking to tell. We even told it again um, just this fall over 11 weeks. But we've wanted to be saying, especially during this Advent season, it's not just that this story is cosmic, but that it's personal. What Jesus wants to do for all of creation, He's also come to do in your hearts. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Gospel of John says that um, Jesus wants to remain in us, and He wants us to remain in Him. Ephesians chapter 3 um, prays that we may all have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. What we've been talking about is this idea that Christ wants to come and do some personal work and business with you and with me. What this is really about, this is a big theological term, this is what we're talking about is progressive sanctification. That is not the sanctification of those who are progressive. As much as you might be eager for that. What this is, is the promise, actually, that once God has done the full and final work of giving us and saving us, there's now this ongoing progressive work of us becoming more and more like Him in our heart and in our character. That we would move toward holiness over time, become more and more like Him as we let Him rummage more and more and deeper and deeper into our hearts and our lives and our imaginations. Can I just tell you something? This is hard work. 
The idea that we might grow in Christ and be more responsive to Him is incredibly difficult, but it's way better than the alternative. If there was instant sanctification, and this is as good as I got, I would be so sad. If you said yes to Jesus and you received both salvation and complete and utter sanctification, this is as good as it gets. This is not just um, a sort of recognizing what's true of the human heart. It's a promise. When you let Christ rummage around in your life, you can move towards deeper and fuller holiness and beauty. We've been talking about that in the life of the mind and um, uh, what's going on with our appetites and our desires and the way that we serve people. And today we'll be, we'll be doing that as we talk about relationships and especially marriage. I know not everyone here uh, is, is in a marriage. Some of us have lost spouses. Some of us have divorced from spouses. Some of us have never been married, maybe never will be married. What I want you to know is 97.8% of what I'm going to say to you all still applies. I'll let you figure out the 2.2% that doesn't. So let's pray, shall we? And we'll, uh, we'll just dive in. Father, thank you for bringing us all together into this room and into this space. We seek in this moment to just acknowledge the many ways you have been good to us this week. Ways that often don't even sort of pass through our minds or our awareness, but right now is an act of worship. We thank you and praise you. Whatever else this week has meant for us, Lord, you've brought us here, and we thank you for that. Pray, Lord, that for those of us who are so excited about Christmas and our lives, and maybe even our married lives, we pray, Lord, that this would be a simple and just beautiful and elegant affirmation of what we're already seeking to live in. And for those, Lord, who are troubled, this is a season of darkness and hardship. Lord, will you help us to hear what is good and pure and beautiful about the gospel? where we discover once again that you are our fullest and our final hope. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be truly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Of course, most of us don't actually want progressive sanctification. Most of us really want to be transmogrified. Do you remember, raise your hand if you remember Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Okay, lots of you. So my family, uh, we got uh, in, in Seattle in that time, there, this paper came in the afternoons. And we would read the paper, especially the comics, me and my brother and my dad. My mom's here, she would tell you she often didn't get it. But me and my brother and my dad, we'd laugh so hard, especially at two comics. One was The Far Side. I mean, come on. And second was Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin and Hobbes had, had this sort of like recurring shtick of the transmogrifier. Calvin had made this little box. If you just go into the box, 
you'd be magically changed, transmogrified into all sorts of different things. One time, Calvin went in there and he was uh, transmogrified into a chicken because Hobbes was hungry. One time he was transmogrified into another little baby tiger. So cute and fuzzy. One time he was uh, transmogrified into a frog. So quick and easy. And of course, we, we want there to be transmogrification in our life. Maybe not so much for ourselves. We would like for the people around us to be transmogrified. Amy, if you just go into this box for a minute, I'm going to turn the dial. Let's just sort of see what happens. But what I want to say from the very beginning is the, the only way that this conversation is going to work as we seek to talk about these relationships is if, is if you know that the work you actually have to do is your own work. We're going to say some hard and challenging things today, I think, to some of us and to our culture. And if afterwards you get in a spot where you're saying, yeah, but Eric said you're supposed to, you have just tried to throw someone into a transmogrifier. All you can do is this progressive, sanctifying work on your own heart and mind, not someone else's. So we're going to seek to understand what the Lord has to say to us about relationships in general, and then specifically about marriages. And uh, it's not necessarily going to be all easy. I certainly can't say everything that uh, could or should be said about marriages and sex and relationships and children and all the things that seem to be true of um, this really important primary human relationship. I can't say it all. Not in 24 minutes but I can say something. So what I'd like to do, actually, is I would like to start by turning to Philippians chapter 2, which is on page 1012. And as you get there, what I want to say is, is when the Bible was being written, more so even than now, relationships were really thought of as primarily, mostly transactional. Do you know what I mean by that? You would do something, you'd be in a relationship because of, well, if you did this, you know that they would then be on the hook to do that. Or if they did that thing, they knew that you would sort of be on the hook to do this other thing. There was this sense of uh, all relationships were in some way sort of a, um, they were a business arrangement in some way, even and maybe even especially marriages. There was this understanding, actually, that, that I am at the very center of my universe, Everything exists for me, and I have to work to try to find how I'm going to get it. And then Christ came. And for those who are in Christ, he lays out actually a very, very different pattern for us. The opposite, actually, of what it means to be transactional. When Jesus comes in the flesh, dies on a cross, raises from the dead, is raised into heaven, forms a new community. He says that new community is going to look utterly and completely different. And we see it over and over and over again in the New Testament. This is just one of those places. It's the first one that I thought of earlier this week. It's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse just 1, which should read 1 through 5. 
All right, here we go. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement with being united with Christ, if you've prepared him room, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing in a transactional way. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What Scripture points out to us from the very beginning is how utterly different and and radically beautiful is the way and the pattern of Jesus Christ. Don't think of ourselves first, but but think of others. There's echoes of it throughout the New Testament. There's There's a new way for us to be thinking about what it's like to be in a conversation and in a relationship and in a community circle with other people. It's not primarily transactional. In fact, it's primarily thinking of the other, not being worried about yourself, not being concerned about what you may or may not get out of the deal. Stott says, John Stott, who's this wonderful Bible commentary, he says, for this to be true, we need to remember that actually that the work of Christ actually does some pretty big things for everybody. What he says is what we need to do, if we're going to live this kind of life, what we need to do is, is understand actually that every single one of us have been bestowed with extraordinary dignity. The only way you can serve and allow yourself to be served is if you, you realize that actually your dignity is of the, the same kind, not more, not less than someone else's. This is what you need to know if this is going to happen actually at the heart of this Christian community is um, is, is not power, but unity and love. If this big old church is really going to work the way that God has in mind and has in store for us, we're, we're going to see that there's the people who are around us, maybe people that we don't always really actually like. We're invited to find, to see a way that there's great dignity there. In a way that would have been shocking in the um, first century world, there's great equality there. In Galatians, and in Ephesians, and in Colossians, Paul says, some version of, but in Christ there is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, but Christ is in all. There's this extraordinary new equality because of the work of Christ who's done that work for everyone in this room. This is the foundation, the beginning steps of our relationship. This is what we must know and remember. As we get a little deeper into this, what I need you to know is we need to talk about dignity, quality, unity, following the pattern of Christ. Now let me invite you to turn to page 1008, Ephesians chapter 5. 
We're basically going to stay here the rest of the time. In most of Paul's letters, so Paul's the apostle that wrote this letter, in almost all of his letters, he um, usually starts out with some sort of um, doctrine, some sort of belief, something about our identity. And then he moves to something about a pattern of life, some way we're supposed to live. And he's adopting a pattern that actually was a very common Roman pattern, and it was common Roman pattern because it had been a common Greek pattern. And actually, you also can find lots of Jewish, Judaic examples of this. And this rule of what we're now supposed to do because of what had just been said, it's so common that um, philosophers and theologians call it, a, you know, they have to give it a, a German word for some reason, Hausfeln. Uh, it's a, a house table. It's a rule of what, the, what houses are supposed to be like. This is, this, is what it's, this, is, this is how the transactions are going to go. And this is the part now where Paul is in this letter to the Ephesians. And, and he starts in this really shocking way. Chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Just going to read verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 22. Pardon me, 21. Follow God's example. He says, therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says that walking in the way of love is going to change everything about our relationships. This is what it will mean for us to walk in the way of Christ, to allow Christ sort of access to our lives. We're going to find that we're going to willingly, sacrificially live with those who are around us, not just fighting for our rights. This is a pattern that he has in mind for all of us, for friendships, neighbors, children, relationships are going to take on an entirely different flavor because of Christ in our life. That's not only true for those relationships out there. This is not sort of like this vague, oh yeah, it sounds so good to just take on the mind of Christ. It's going to be great. But then he says, actually, now let me tell you how this is actually going to work out in real life human relationships. This is what's next. He's going to talk to, to speak to wives and to husbands. He's like, this is what this is now going to look like. And can I tell you, we're going we're to talk about some things that are going to be, I think, challenging to some of us because some of these words and phrases, frankly, have become trigger words. We can't get past them. I'm going to encourage you today together with me, to get past them. Let's turn to chapter 5, verse 22. Here it is. Our hair hates this. We hate this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Some of you have just stopped listening. <laughs> Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Oftentimes, that's where the conversation ends. Well, I can't do that, and I'm out. What I need to be clear about is when the Bible here uses the word submit, it is not using the word submit the way that we often hear it. This is not like um, relational mixed martial arts where you get sort of beat down and you finally just have to kind of tap out and say, okay, you win. That's not what this is. This is not a sort of imagining a relational sort of wrestling match where for some unknown sort of crazy reason, the man always has to win. Instead, this is a different kind of a submission set after a different kind of a pattern of the way we understand relationships. This is, this is not subjection. This is not slavery. Remember, this is all in the sense of equality. So this is not inferiority or chauvinism or misogyny. And yet I know that this passage has often been used in that way throughout several thousand years of human relationships. We've used this word in a way that seems to say men win, women lose. This is not that, friends. And this certainly is not the, the conversation and, and fight that we um, sometimes have in our, in our hearts about what's women's work and what's men's work. Those are, those are cultural distinctions the Bible doesn't say a lot about. So it's not like work at home for the women and work out in the world for men. That's not what this is about. Too often this has been used as a way to sort of subjugate and diminish the importance of women. And if that's you, you need to repent. You need to rethink. You need to recalibrate what it is that the whole Bible says about men and women. And yet also, I need to say, we, we can't run from this idea that, that women are called to submit in multiple times. I just chose one of the clearest. How are we supposed to understand that? I know there have been times when men have taken this seriously in the wrong way. I also know that we live in a moment where women hear this and buck against it because they hear it in the wrong way. This is a tender thing, friends. Wives, submit to your husbands. And what he has in mind when he says this is actually sort of seeking not to sort of follow the pattern of power, like who always wins the power fight, but instead, how can we understand this in light of what we, we know Christ is like with the church? He says, in the same way that, that we see that, that the church is, seeks to submit itself and, and glorify and be with and voluntarily sacrifice for Christ. That's this kind of submission. It's voluntary. 
It's free. It's joyful. It's not grim. It's trusting. To submit in this way is strong, not weak. What's interesting about the Scriptures in the New Testament, in a way that that no other house rules ever said was really clear, actually, women are free moral agents. That does not often get celebrated in this moment. The Bible invites you to see that this is actually a choice, and it's it's a holy one. It's a godly one. To find some way to say, I'm going to submit freely in this relationship. Because it is a a pattern, a very specific pattern, of what it's like for us to submit to one another, as we saw in Philippians. But challenging, because it's about your actual life, not just some pretty words. When this happens... Wives find a way to joyfully submit. That tells part of the story of Christ with his people. You're living out the story visibly for others of what it's like for Christ to be loved by his church. Now the problem is oftentimes we stop there, right? How many times have you really done a study where someone said, and now what are the husbands supposed to do? We always fight about the word submit and submission. Again, friends, this is not about relational boxing. What Paul seems to indicate, actually, is is there's a mutuality to this that often gets ignored. There's There's a way of understanding how this is supposed to go relationally that often gets untalked about because we get we want to just fight about the word submit. But can we just go on? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can I just tell you something? Of all the house rules that we have examples of, the only place we are going to find that men are to love their wives is right here in the Bible. This is it. You are not going to find a, another set of house rules as, as cultures sought to sort of lay out what the relational rules were in Greece and in Rome and in Jerusalem. You won't find another place. And what Scripture has in mind, actually, is this beautiful, sacrificial, loving circle of mutuality. Totally and completely different, often, than the way I think about and manage and live my own life. Most of the other examples we have would confirm all your own worst fears about traditional marriage. 
that it um, is really actually about sort of making sure one gets to dominate over the other, that it's demeaning, that there's always a declared winner. But friends, that's actually not what the Bible lays out for us. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Can I just show you the, the five verbs that he gives us here that are a model for us as we seek to understand what that actually means? Let me just point them out to you very quickly. First of all, Jesus loved her all the way to the point of death. He gave himself up for her, not thinking of himself. He sanctified her, seeking to make her holy. He cleansed her, got her ready, and presented her at the final day. And what's imaged here for human marriage is that the husband would do everything he can that his wife would flourish. That she would become everything she possibly is meant to become in Christ. That she would, like Christ did for us, give away of himself entirely that she might actually have life. That she might have it to the full. That she might actually have this chance to sort of become more than she could possibly imagine. Husbands, love your wives like that. And if you do, she will not, she'll gladly submit to you always building her up. She'll love that, friends. Submit. Love like Christ. Submit. Love like Christ. It's a ladder, friends. There's no, there's no battle there's just victory. And we want to have fight about the word submit in the 21st century. When what God has in mind for our relationships is that they would in this really beautiful, glorious way be nourishing and growing and affirming and beautiful and mutual. Can I just remind you, there is no transmogrifier. You don't, later on today, when you're talking about this with a friend or a spouse, you don't get to say, yeah, but Eric said you're supposed to. You don't get to do it. This is what happens if you do. A couple of years ago, I don't even remember what the issue was. I remember where I was sitting in our dining room, in our little kitchen nook. And we've been talking about the same thing for a couple days or weeks. Whatever it was, it was totally agitating to me. And I said to my beautiful bride, I'm so embarrassed by this, will you just submit? And she said, no. <laughs> and she was right to do it. And do you know why? Because I was seeking to just leverage my power instead of come under her and serve her. I didn't have her flourishing in mind. I wasn't seeking to, to have her become as spotless and blameless and beautiful as the bride of Christ is to Christ. I just wanted to win. <laughs> I just wanted to use the Bible as a weapon, which has been done for hundreds and thousands of years. But friends, 
do not do it. In that moment, she was so surprised, she, what she should have said is, well, love me like Christ. <laughs> that's what she should have said. Because, friends, that's the pattern. I find myself wanting to sort of lovingly do everything I can for her to flourish because I see her willingly stepping into our life together and submitting, even when I sometimes make a mistake. And she willingly, lovingly submits when it's going well and I'm doing this right because I'm loving her like Christ loves the church. Not seeking my own gain, not seeking my own comfort, not seeking my own power in the relationship, but seeking to do something that is beautifully mutual. Christ has set that aside for us as a pattern in our relationships and most especially this most personal and intimate and primary relationships, that we would serve the other, love the other, give ourselves away for the other. Sometimes when I uh, do weddings, I use this, uh, this metaphor of uh, two reeds, and what I say is, I want you to think about sort of reeds that are sort of like on a little, you know, pond on a pond edge, and the wind comes. What ends up happening, actually, is this happens with the we, with, you know, I don't have, like, ballerina hands at, like, our waves, but just imagine the wind comes, one bends toward and one bends away. Does that describe often the way you find yourself managing your own relationships? You're kind of surprised by the love that's being bestowed upon you, and you kind of, you bend away, or you want to keep on fighting? And actually, friends, this is not the way of Christ. But this is. You lean in. You bend toward one another in service. Do you recognize this dynamic in your own relationships? Someone's trying hard to connect with you, apologize. They might not be doing it the way you would prefer, but you bend away. This might be okay, like as an awkward, like middle school dance. <laughs> but it's not okay for marriages. Several years ago, there was this huge uh, windstorm in Spokane when we were on vacation, and we knew it was coming. They, all the, you know, alarms went off. I'm like, I'm going to sit on the porch and watch this thing. And I found myself in the middle of a tornado. And at Amy's parents' property, what I, what I saw were these trees, big, you know, pines, thick pines, doing this. They couldn't tell which way the wind was coming. It's coming right from the top. And friends, what I want you to do is to imagine actually that whatever trouble there is in your relationship is, is not just affecting one and the other in this way, but actually it's coming from the top. And you both find yourself bending toward one another in service and in love in that moment. This is how we are called to be in Christ, in our marriages, in our relationships. And here's what I think I know. That's hard. There is no transmogrifier. There's only progressive sanctification where you give Jesus Christ a bigger corner and a bigger corner and a bigger corner. 
you're married, I want you to think about something that's sort of been like this in your life. Maybe it's recent. Maybe it's been a constant chafing. If you're not married at this moment, I want you to think about a close relationship and friendship that you have, one where there's some sort of tension. And I want you to do this this week. Go have a cup of coffee. Have a conversation about it. Make the phone call if you don't live with this person. Do the actual difficult work of becoming more like Christ and the way he wants his people to be. You all know what it is. You know what your thing is. I don't have to tell you. You know why? The Spirit is speaking to you already. And living in Christ requires courage. This is easy. This is hard. Can I pray for you before we sing our closing hymn? Lord, we thank you for this word, for this challenge for us to live not just under our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ who has swept away all the transactional expectation and in his place put a beautiful bending toward one another. Lord, because we are all on a journey, each of us has some work to do in this way. With a spouse or a friend or a neighbor, Lord, in Christ, we are called to do the surprising thing and live a ministry of reconciliation. So I pray that your spirit would rest on the hearts and minds and souls of every person in this room. What they've been called to do is not easy, but it is good. I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with courage and gentleness and patience. That as they let you rummage around in the heart of their relationships and maybe their marriage if they're in one, that you would help them spring to new life and new joy and new maturity. We thank you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.